Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Today it's our great pleasure to welcome LDS counselor and coach Dr. Finlayson Fife. Uh, Jennifer, we're so glad to have you on the program. Uh, Jennifer specializes in fostering couples in their intimate relationships. And as we've, we've been talking about this, Chris, for a long time, about doing an episode on the divine feminine, but one thing always slowed us down. What is that? We needed a feminine guest, <laughs> a female guest. We just, we don't have the authority to talk about this. Right. So it's just not how it works. Just having the, the input and perspective of, of a female is really important for us. And we, we've talked a while about who that might be. And, you know, I've, I've been a fan, Dr. Finlayson Fife, for a long time of, uh, of your coaching online. And, and I'm on your Facebook page. And there's, there's great input there, great stuff for relationships. And so I thought, what the heck, I'm going to reach out to you. And I'm so uh, gratified that you would accept. So thanks and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So today, as I mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about the divine feminine. Uh, oh, before I do, I want to mention, too, just a quick plug for you. You are doing a podcast of your own, right? Yeah, um, I just I've been on a lot of people's podcasts. So that's an archive that I have. But then I just started my own podcast um, several months ago called Room for Two, where I am doing couples coaching with couples around relationship and sexuality issues. So, of course, the couples are anonymous, but it allows people to listen in on the very common marital challenges that many of us face in our intimate relationships and allows people to listen to my input on those struggles. And so it gives people a way to understand how they're participating in their challenges and what they can do to change them. So it's been very fun and well-received podcast. And how would they find that just on the, all the big podcast providers? Yes. Well, actually, because it's a subscription podcast, you can find it on my website. If you go to finlaysonfife.com, you'll see the podcast there and there's more information about it. And, you know, so you can subscribe there, but then you can get it on all those podcast feeds. And you're, you're running a special on that uh, right now. Well, actually, the online courses are 20% off for Christmas. So I have courses for LDS couples on your relationship, your sexual relationship, and also courses on self and sexual development for men and women. So those are all 20% off. But probably about the time that this podcast releases, we are actually doing a, um, a promo on that Room for Two podcast. So it's $97 a year normally, and it will go down to $79 a year just for a week before Christmas. Awesome. Awesome. Look forward to that. Great. So we are talking about the divine feminine today. And, you know, this is this is a topic that is probably pretty popular lately, I would say. There's a lot of people talking about this. 
I'm not sure what spurred this groundswell of interest in the divine feminine. There's probably some overlap or carryover from those interested in this topic of Heavenly Mother, which is more heavily discussed in, in Latter-day Saint circles these days. But what, in, your, in your view, what are the dominant attributes of this, of this idea of divine feminine? Yeah, so I think, first of all, just to kind of give a little context here, I think that as human beings, well, first of all, in Taoism and other philosophies, there's also, there's been a recognition of a kind of fundamental tension that or a fundamental differences in approach to life. And I think it has something to do with our biology, like the right and left brain, and different tendencies in how we process information, how we act and engage in the world. And so I think because women tend to be uh, more towards the feminine intelligence or the what is in Taoism called yin, and men more towards the masculine or what is called yang, there is these the central tension. It's often a part of attraction. It's often a part of desire that we're drawn to that opposite energy or the energy where we're not as strong. So what divine yin is or divine feminine is more this sort of expressive, compassionate, collaborative, reflective, um, accepting tendency, the more receptive, intuitive. Um, so it's more free-flowing. Just as a contrast, divine masculine is more about sort of structure, logic, action, firmness, loyalty. You know, that's more the kind of the constant and the divine feminine is more the expressive or the moving elements of our intelligence and of our humanity. And so um, so that's kind of capturing some of the... And then one other thing I would say, and we can talk about any of this more, is that there's immature versions of feminine and mature versions of the feminine energy, just as this, the same with masculine. There's immature masculine and mature masculine. And so... So I, I think it's interesting that there is a renewed interest. I think in some ways that has a lot to do with like in sort of our, in the 1950s, for example, there was a lot of focus on what men are supposed to be, what women are supposed to be, very rigid ideas around masculine and feminine, very deter gender determined ideas that really limit men and women. They're immature. And then I think in the 70s with feminism and, you know, just more anti-authoritarianism, which has been part of our culture in the last few decades. I think there's been much more like it's all open and fluid and so on. But I think that while there's strength in challenging that rigidity, I think that there's to not acknowledge these differences or to to sort of pathologize those differences, I think we lose something that's also fundamental to who we are and therefore undermines our strength. So I wonder if part of the renewed interest is that we're looking for something that we've we've overcorrected, that we've lost something that we need in order to be true to our to our individual strengths. The pendulum has swung the other way. Yes, exactly. And you talk about the individual nature of of these archetypal characteristics, where I think a lot of people get tripped up or hung up on is this idea that if if I develop any of these characteristics as a man of the divine feminine or vice versa as a woman of the divine masculine, that somehow I'm, you know, I'm, I'm betraying myself, my nature. Right. And I, I think that's not the right 
idea. In fact, I sometimes prefer to use yin and yang because it doesn't, you don't get in this idea that as a woman, I must embody only the feminine or that somehow I'm being, you know, like a man if I have masculine traits. I think that's not helpful. I think that if you think about Christ, he's a, he captures the divine masculine and the divine feminine. It is an ideal to develop the qualities, the strengths from both intelligences or proclivities, while I think we can still favor our natural preferred energy. And I think some research suggests that about 80% of women and 80% of men prefer that or they have, are stronger towards their natural, the feminine for a female, the masculine for a male. But as you develop, you want, these are additive, these are not, this is not about um, you can only have one set of characteristics. You want to be able, if you're a man, to be assertive and strong and determined, but you also are going to be lacking in your life if you don't develop those feminine qualities of being compassionate and receptive and thoughtful and, and reflective on your life. Just as with a woman, you want to also be capable of, you know, fluidity and flexibility, but you want to also be able to be, uh, you know, able to be determined in your life or create a mission in your life. And so these are, as we develop, we you often see as men and women get older that they start to develop more of the qualities on the other side. My dad became more compassionate, open-hearted, you know, more emotional even as he got older. He was more thoughtful. He would cry more easily. My mother started her own business. She'd never done anything like that before, raised children. But then my dad was supporting her in what she was doing. Um, and so they kind of took on opposite elements, and they were both stronger and better for having done that. Do you think that there's any relation between the idea of, of incorporating both the, the masculine and feminine or the yin and yang and, and Christ in, in relation to his perfection? Mm-hmm. Is, that what, is that what perfection means? Yeah. So I have talked quite a bit about perfectionism in some of my teaching, and a lot of us have this limited idea that it means being flawless and I think that comes from the industrial, in Christ's time, perfection actually meant whole. And I think Christ and our theology, our LDS theology, is very much around growth into a developed being, becoming whole, becoming, developing our intelligence, becoming capable. Um, After the Industrial Revolution, perfect started to take on the meaning of flawless, that it wasn't like an artisan who completes their art but more that a machine has produced something and it's without flaw. And so that's kind of tapped into a lot of our kind of immature thinking that in order to be worthy or to have value, we must be without flaw which, or imperfection, which I don't think we'll ever be. Um, but to be whole is our goal, not to be you know, without vulnerability or limitation. It's actually a teaching that's gaining some traction within from the leadership of the church as well. I mean, someone in a recent general conference talk, talked about the meaning of telos as complete rather than perfect, right? And so this idea is it's gaining some traction and it has a lot of validity. Now, you, you mentioned something that I, I love is maybe replacing feminine and masculine, although we're going to continue to refer to them in this episode as divine feminine with yin and yang. That really points to this idea that, you know, the, these symbols that we've chosen, feminine and masculine to represent these yin-yang energies, they're fairly arbitrary. They happen to correspond to something that we all experience because of the qualities that we are imbued with from each of those those sides or archetypes. 
but they're sort of arbitrary. So by taking instead, I mean, I don't know what yin and yang mean literally. To me, they're they're Chinese words that have no meaning outside of just they symbolize something, right? And so that's almost almost better for me to have a meaningless word that just represents a set of attributes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I just think because we have this, well, I shouldn't be masculine. That would make me, you know, less of a woman or something. So it, it, it can make us resist those ideas as opposed to I want to be a developed person. I want to be capable of being assertive or analytical because those are good human qualities. I want to develop those aspects of myself. But I also want to have these more yin qualities because the, it makes life easier when you can pull from a range of attributes. One of the things I talk about a lot in my work is that we are beings in development. And when you're growing from immaturity into maturity, you develop into a solid and flexible self. So you become truer to who you are at the same time, and it seems paradoxical even, that you have more flexibility, you have more expansiveness in your ability to respond to things in life because you've developed more capacity and skill. And I, I see this as, you know, even in that Taoist symbol, the masculine and feminine, uh, you know, come together. I don't know if people can pull that image up in their mind, but it within the yang, there is an element of yin and within the yin, there's an element of yang. And so, you know, I know in my husband, he has elements of yin that are so desirable to me that I love that the compassion the open-heartedness uh, there's masculine in me or yang in me you know in many ways I'm more assertive than my husband is in in different aspects and so there, those are qualities that are kind of fundamental to wholeness and also to collaborative couplehood there's something you said that I really loved it that you said that these are human qualities I'm reminded of Terence who said, nothing human is alien to me. If you're human, then whether they're masculine or, or feminine or yin or yang qualities, they're human qualities. And, and they should, you should incorporate all of them to be perfect, right? To be whole. Yeah. And I, I do think there's a part of attraction where you're drawn to what you haven't yet developed. And that's good from just a you know, if you're going to parent to have a range of capacities. But I think it's also about the elements of self that we want to develop or we're trying to figure out. And so we're drawn to it. What a lot of us do is then go on to resent it and dislike it in our spouse, you know, even though we found it attractive and compelling at first. But I think to better understand that as a, as a, um, what's the word, like a functional idea to kind of reach for those capacities that are mysterious to us still that are out of reach, but that compel us. And to embrace that tension, that's a part of marriage or a part of ourselves in development, these aspects of self that we haven't yet mastered within ourselves. Oh, I love that it really points to sort of the immature versus mature approach to relationships. It seems like when when young couples are initially attracted to each other, a lot of times the attraction is based on how it makes me feel. So I have like this selfishness almost where I'm with this person because they always tell me how pretty I look or how smart I am or and it makes me feel good. And so it's almost like a reflection of my own ego. But absolutely. But at a certain point to become uh, a more mature uh, player in this relationship, I have to not only be in it for how it makes me feel, but for what's what it offers me down the road. And, And that's drawing off the energy of the other person because this opposites attract thing is real. Yes. And to be in a relationship, not out of an entitled position, 
I think just as you're saying, but more out of an embracing position. You're embracing the divine nature of this relationship because it drives your development. So you're in that fundamental tension that pressures your development into a more whole person. So when we're, just as you say, when we're immature, we're looking to find someone that will reinforce our sense of our desirability and of our legitimacy. And then we're hoping to lock that in, you know, and then they have to love us because they promised God they would. Okay. So that's the immature version. And it's, and we can talk about it in terms of immature masculine and feminine in a minute, if that would be helpful, but it's need-based. It's like, I need you to legitimize me. And I want what's different than me to legitimize me rather than, and, and then what happens is that breeds resentment, you know, because that won't legitimize you. And, you know, when your partner does things differently than you, when they don't legitimize or like the way that you're different than them, you can think something's wrong with the marriage, wrong with your spouse, wrong with you, and resent it as opposed to, no, I locked in a system that will pressure my development to understand what I don't yet understand, to develop more flexibility, to develop more compassion, to develop more ability to hold my own in the best sense in a partnership, right? These are things that in order for that partnership to thrive, a kind of development must happen within the individual for the collective to thrive. And so if you can move into a position of embracing those differences and choosing and valuing that other person, even though they don't validate you, those are the couples that really come to understand a kind of freedom in marriage and in intimacy. You know, this is kind of a road I want to go down that I haven't planned on. But, you know, when most of us enter into a relationship, we we don't have any of this in mind. It's it's not like we're thinking, oh, I, I'm really going to lock myself into a development uh, track with a person who is going to challenge me at every level. No one thinks about that. I mean, <laughs> if they do, they're like freaks, honestly, because that it's <laughs> yeah. got to be so rare. And, yeah. and so how, how do we go about, like I've got a 21-year-old daughter who's unmarried and a an, uh, son who's on a mission right now who's, you know, uh, in a relationship for the last couple of years with his girlfriend. And so for me, wanting to teach my daughter and son about how to approach on the front end a relationship that's going to be healthy for years to come, how would you, how would you go how about that? How would I that? say it? Well, I think one of the things I have said to my kids is that, you know, the most important thing is to be capable within yourself of repentance. And what I mean is the ability to self-confront, to recognize your limitations and not uh, make other people pay for your limitations or punish them for seeing them in you. And to allow that to develop yourself, to be in an honest relationship with who you are and who you are not yet. And to marry someone who can do the same. Because I think that's the single most important variable to growing into a real friendship. When you will not self-confront, won't look at yourself, demand that the other person feed you the picture of yourself that you want, or you're married to someone who won't do that, it really undermines the ability for that process to happen that, that a marriage can create in people. So I think that's, and I think that I, you know, am, would talk to my daughter or son about the idea that this is a developmental process and there's nothing wrong with the fact that in the beginning it feels so good to be loved by them, to be desired by them, to feel chosen by them. Those are wonderful things. 
But when they start to break down, nothing is going wrong. That is that it's starting to reveal some of the limitations that need to be revealed. And you can either resent that revelation or you can utilize it to keep growing in your capacity to love and be loved. I feel like you're adding me and I'm not comfortable with it right now. <laughs> to use social media parlance, just at me next time. Uh, I, I recognized a few years back that usually when I get mad in my household, like I'm mad at my kids or I'm mad at my wife, it, it's a, it's a, it's coming from a place of that's my own limitation. Like I'm mad that I don't myself do that very well. And so I'm getting mad at someone else about the same thing. It's a, it's a yeah, weird dynamic. They're pointing it out. They're pointing it out. They don't <laughs> like it. And then it's like, take, shoot the messenger, you know, get rid of, <laughs> get rid of the evidence. Uh huh. Yes. Very tempting. I've noticed the same thing. <laughs> Have you? Oh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> so are we are we not. fundamentally out of balance um speaking like more meta now back to culture and, and religion and whatnot christianity at large or maybe within our own church are we fundamentally out of balance at this moment in one or the other set of attributes probably i mean i have to say i don't know because i don't know if people were to do so those there's research that was done by sandra bem for example and there was a category of participants that would come up as androgynous. That is to say, she looked to see what culturally was defined as more masculine attributes, what was culturally defined as more feminine, and who scored high on both. And there is a, I can't remember, but it was 20% of her study tended to score as more androgynous. So some of that may be natural. There may be some people who naturally have some elements of both. Some are more strictly yin and some are more strictly yang. But I think that most people tend to favor an energy and all of us have room for development. So that is to say, everybody, wherever you, whatever you favor has elements to become either more mature in your preferred energy and or to develop aspects of other, the other energy that you need for a life that's more balanced and flexible. What does the energy look like when it's immature, Jennifer? Yeah, it's more, so for example, immature, well, let me start with a kind of global idea. Immaturity is more dependency-based. So some of our cultural ideas around what men should be, what women should be, are very dependent. Uh, that is to say, when the immature masculine needs to be needed, he needs to be seen as strong, even if he isn't. And so immature masculine wants to sort of dominate, own, act more intelligent than one is, more competent than one is. It's very, you know, much like trying to demonstrate that you're on top, even if you are not. <laughs> and, and, it, and it wants to control not just oneself, but others to feel strong. Immature feminine is also dependent because that's more needy. So it, to need to be needed is a needy position. And being explicitly needy, of course, is a needy position. But it's more like, I want you to take care of me. I want you to give me a life. I want you to make me feel good about me because I'm insecure and uncertain. And if I can just slide underneath you, I'll make you feel like a man. And then you can make me feel like I'm a desirable woman. And that's inherently dependent. I don't know that there's another way to do it in the beginning because it's where we start. We're looking outside of ourselves to manage the question of who we are and whether or not we're sufficient. And a lot of us are taught to do them in these archetypal, immature, masculine, and feminine ways. 
So many couples start out that way. And then they come to see me about the time that the resentment is just breaking the sense of friendship and partnership because the immature masculine doesn't feel reinforced, doesn't feel desired, admired, you know, doesn't feel sufficient gratitude for all he provides. I'm just going to do it in the kind of stereotypical way. And the immature feminine is like, look, I don't feel good about myself. You don't make me feel desirable. You don't make me feel good about me. And what have you done for me lately? Kind of. <laughs> and, um, you know, that you're, I've, I've kind of capitulated to you and I don't feel good about me and it's your job. That's immature feminine is sort of hiding in that place of dependency. And so when people come to me, I'm helping them to start to see that dependent system the immaturity and neediness in both positions, even though immature masculine is pseudo strong, it looks to appear strong, but it isn't. It's highly dependent, it's highly rigid, it's highly terrified of being exposed for vulnerability. Sometimes immature feminine is afraid of her own strength and of her own autonomy and of her own ability to expose her own gifts and capacities. And so I'm working to help people see how they are creating the misery, they're co-creating the misery they're in, and how they're trying to utilize the other to manage a responsibility that resides within them to their own development and to their own strength, and to help them start to grow into stronger capacity within themselves in what a, whatever variation that may mean for who they each individually are, right? So... Um, yeah. And so that it's when you're more mature that you're able to really create partnership that's out of choice, not out of need, that's out of a desire for another person, not seeking reinforcement. So I talk about desire out of immaturity and desire out of maturity. Desire out of immaturity is I want you to reinforce me, make me feel good, make me feel desirable, reinforce my sense of self versus desire out of maturity is I choose you even though you don't reinforce me oftentimes, that you're different than me, that I know who you are and I want you. I want to be close to you. I want you in my life. You are my friend, not because I need you to reinforce me, but because I want to bring my best to you and I want to share a life with you and share my sexuality with you. That's a desire that comes out of capacity uh, to really embrace another person and the inherent tension that comes through doing that. But most people do that in the middle of a marriage if they ever do it. Something that you highlight that's really interesting to me, you can take any of these characteristics and by themselves, they're sort of, um, they're sort of neutral or androgynous. But it's, it's the, the approach to that capacity or to that attribute that constitutes the masculine or feminine. So you highlighted, for instance, I've got X amount of capacity. On the masculine side, the immature masculine side, it's, overestimating our capacity, believing we're more than we actually are at the moment. And on the feminine side, it's underestimating our capacity. And it's actually so to become more whole or complete is just to move to reality, to the reality of who we are. Right. Absolutely. That's why you call it repentance, right? It's, it's about turning and seeing things the way they are in a new way, right? And which in this case is the way that they are more realistically. And that's like, if I have a kind of mantra that captures, you know, the work I do with couples is the truth sets you free. The part that got edited out is the truth makes you miserable first, then it sets you free. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Dang it. you know, you didn't want to lose readers. 
<laughs> and so it's like you have to wake up to who you are and who you are not. You have to wake up to reality. And that stretches us. And, you know, a lot of times feminism has highlighted the abuses of immature masculine, right? Which is absolutely true and on point and something we need to see. But also, I think sometimes what it's underarticulated is the upside of immature feminine. I don't mean it's a true upside. It's like there's a reason why uh, women have sometimes been collusive in that arrangement, because you don't have to grow into your strength. You don't have to be exposed. When Christ talks about the parable of the talents, it's like it's easier to to kind of not develop, not grow, sometimes to hide that capacity, maybe as as the immature feminine, because you've learned that you should be small to be desirable. I certainly remember that idea and that fear that if I really were to show my strength, maybe a man would not want me because I'd be a threat to his sense of capacity. And, you know, and I had to kind of say that I would rather not be partnered if I have to be small to be in a partnership I'd rather be who I am and be true to myself and find somebody who that is not threatening to. Uh, And I'm really glad I went that route (laughs) because that's the only way you can have a marriage that's really happy because the happiest people feel free to be themselves and to expand themselves in the context of marriage. That sounds like a real testament to your husband, John, as well, who we just met pre-show. Yeah. That he is comfortable with your capacity being expressed. Absolutely. This is all really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> At our wedding dinner, this is this is before I I really, you know, I was still in my PhD program when John and I got married and at our wedding dinner, he stood up and said, "I know Jennifer has a real gift and and I want to support her in that gift because the world needs the gift she has." And it's like he could see it and he already knew that he and that was not threatening to him. You know, and this was coming out of dating people where it did feel threatening, where, you know, I had a guy I really liked who said, you know, I just don't feel like a man when I'm with you. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> what does that mean? Like, <laughs> I'm that emasculating. I don't want to think of myself that way. <laughs> but for John, that just wasn't the case. Like, it felt natural and comfortable and right for him to support that. as a, And it's for me, that's a function of his his strength, a function of his clarity of self that he can support something for the greater good, even if it doesn't reinforce or make him look strong in some overt sense. And I respect that deeply. It does speak to his development of more of the divine feminine side of things, which essentially is um, b- being willing to be submissive and take take a supportive role. Right, to support a larger mission. That's right. So I think I had a stronger sense of mission, even though to me it was unarticulated at that point. I I didn't quite, I mean, I was thinking more about, you know, being a mother and being home, which I did do for years. But I think that that was in me. And I think John could feel that that was in me. And it felt, that's right, that that is a divine feminine quality, which is it felt and has continued to feel comfortable to him to support that mission. And yeah which has been such a gift for me and I'm so grateful for it and a gift to to anybody that I've been able to help because I do have this supportive, kind presence in my life that gives me that strength that I need. That's beautiful. So I, I want to, we've talked <clears throat> from almost like a secular standpoint here, really these concepts can apply to anybody in or out of religion. But there's actually a pretty strong hint of this in our own tradition, if we'll follow it. 
and, and that is in the temple, there's, there's a very gendered approach to the temple that, you know, it, it may be somewhat a, a vestige of the tradition of separating the men and the women and having separate development tracks, but there also could be kind of a spiritual approach to this that, that really approximates a lot of what we're talking about here in the individual and so if we see the temple as kind of that microcosm of the individual developing through the stages of becoming a complete person, then, then integrating the divine masculine and feminine within the individual, the temple really becomes a great symbol for that, doesn't it? I've never thought about it, but yeah, maybe. Um, that's interesting, that sense of, meaning when you look at developmental uh, theory, and how boys and girls develop. Like there is this period of separation that's really important for developing capacity to be a couple, to be able to be more integrated with a different self. And that's interesting. It's just an idea I haven't thought about before. So that this idea of developing wholeness, sometimes, you know, the temple has evolved and I've sometimes thought of it as immature earlier, where it was more about that dependency model of the feminine yields to the masculine. And that's been evolving and changing to be more symmetrical, which I think it must be. Because I think if you're going, the way I, the way I experienced it when I first went through was the feminine must yield to the masculine, which was disruptive for me, that felt wrong to me. And so I'm glad for the the evolution and the changes because for me it always felt like how can the if the feminine only yields to the masculine in as much as the masculine follows the divine right how is she to how does she know if the masculine's following the divine except that she can also map what's divine and so to me it felt like a middleman and a vestige of an old model not as that masculine and feminine must have equal authority ultimately if it's going to be collaborative that is not that they both have the same strengths, but there is wisdom and divinity in both and the ability to track what is divine and true in both, even if they have different roles or different uh, qualities to offer to the body of Christ, to the divine entity. So um, I think if we do see that as this ability to develop those individual qualities, I think that's a wonderful idea. We, we're going to keep going down this track a little bit, and, and we'll, we'll see if this opens up some avenues here. So it, I think what, you're, what you felt in your first temple experience and what a lot of, a lot of women have felt you know, in past years before the liturgy has, uh, as you say, kind of equalized, right, is that, that women were, were sub, submitting to men. And if we separate, again, the you know, the biological sex of the participants from the attributes of the divine masculine feminine, and we see the attributes as being part of the individual, is there something to be said for the natural divine attribute, divine feminine attribute of submiss- submissiveness, support, um, supporting, collaborating within the liturgy of submitting to the masculine? Not necessarily women to men, but feminine to masculine, is there something to that? And then the other idea, too, is that, you know, the masculine seeks you. It's almost like I will impose upon you this this commandment, this idea, this rule, this structure, this order, whatever. And conversely, the feminine is usually sought out. 
like you have to you have to really seek for that because it's underneath. So she's she's not putting herself at the forefront and telling you this is the way it's going to be, imposing on the on the flip side it's more persuading. It's like you will come to me because you'll see the value in me. You'll seek me out. I don't know, just that's an idea. Right. Right, right. Well, I think so to your first question. I think there's no the first of all there's a submission out of weakness. Right. So there's immaturity in submission. Like, I don't know what I think and I don't want to think about what I think and I'll just do what you say, but I'll resent you if it doesn't go the right way. <laughs> okay. Um, but then there's submission out of strength. That is to say that I will submit to this larger goal because my ego is not as important as my ability to support a larger reality. And, and so there's no question there is a very virtuous or submission from strength. And part of that divine feminine, there is this capacity to submit out of strength. And I think it's also part of what I teach women in my Art of Desire course is this ability to receive. There's a kind of receptivity that comes from strength of self. Like to be able to surrender to pleasure and sexuality is for some that are more fearful, feel like that's to lose oneself, to kind of like surrender and that that's scary. Right. But when you can actually know yourself, it, it develops your ability to surrender to pleasure or to surrender to a larger goal that's bigger than you. Right. So there's no question this is a part of the archetypal defined feminine. It's a strength. It's something that society, community, relationships need in order to thrive. My critique of how we've tended to do this in the church is it's in the more immature form historically, and we are in evolution in which I embrace and celebrate that we are in that evolution. But I think that because it was so gendered, and also these sort of layers of polygamy, and men have access to the divine and women do not, for me, it just felt painful and wrong. Yeah, that's the context of our history, right? Because like, it, it, we, we suffer from literalizing everything. Instead of seeing below the surface at maybe what the symbols could be pointing to. And if you take that that liturgy of the temple and follow it all the way up, the highest ordinance, the highest act in the temple is is the sealing, is the seal is the com, the communion of the divine masculine and the divine feminine together. And that while that's a real thing between a couple as they're getting married for, you know, time and all eternity, it's also a symbol of what happens in the fully complete developed integrated human individual yeah absolutely not right away in the in the ceremony but eventually in the marriage right you know i I understood riley's question a little bit differently than you jennifer and i may have been completely i may have just understood something that riley wasn't even saying but i was wondering based on my understanding of riley's question if you would speak to this what if in in separating biological men from biological women in liturgy what we're really doing is representing a separation of the divine masculine and feminine in each individual, regardless of gender. So that again, as we've been saying, they can, so that, and as you've said, Jennifer, we can actually see what they are for, you know, something, there's this and there's this, there's this and there's that, there's the yin and yang. And then we can actually bring them back together in this, what Jung called the mystery of conjunction, right? The mysterium conjunctionis. Well, and one one thing to add to that too is within that that uh, play, okay, that acting out of the liturgy, you have a witness couple that becomes the example of the two coming together. Frequently, it's like 
it's it's almost that dot that's in the yin and yang on each side that that shows like okay you have a little bit of this in you and so even though we've separated our attributes within the creation room men over on the right women on the left we we get to see the potential before we actually get to the ceiling ordinance we we get to see the potential of what it could be as we bring Adam and Eve back together and it says you know you're to consider yourself as if you are respectively Adam and Eve the the old liturgy didn't have the word respectively in there uh, interestingly enough it was just you are to consider yourself as if you were Adam and Eve oh yeah maybe you didn't know that part huh it is <laughs> i i like that so yeah well i think those are lovely ideas actually and i think one of our vulnerabilities is the prioritization of the masculine over the feminine. And I think this has happened in church culture, but it's happened in the larger culture. It's certainly there in Western culture. It's a, it's a danger, like in marriage, if there is a hierarchy of whose vote counts most, right? Because if, if we really put it as we are truly equal with difference, with different qualities, and there's a fundamental tension to that that's where I see true goodness and development emerging. It's when you try to handle the anxiety of that fundamental tension by creating hierarchy within the couple that you really uh, damn the progress of that couple. You really interfere with that marriage thriving. There's damnation. Or community thriving. There's mm -hmm. damnation as we usually talk about it, Riley. Absolutely. As this actual epistemological concept, something that's happening to you, that isn't this metaphysical or ontological thing that uh, that comes from God, but something that you're actually experiencing, creating, and, and yes, yes. And creating for yourself exactly. Christopher, uh, in in kind of preparing for this show, we reached out to several um, of our followers on our Facebook page with Latter Day Peace Studies. We reached out to friends and and neighbors because we we felt like uh, Dr. Fife, this was an opportunity for us to you know, really stretch the boundaries and, and open our minds about this with you. And we, we got some interesting feedback. And I don't know if this is a great time to do it, but Christopher, what, what do you think about introducing what your sister shared with you? So when I asked my sisters if they might have any questions for, for you, Jennifer, one of them said, I love how that sounds, the divine feminine, but I don't know anything about it. Maybe a question would be, why? Why don't I know anything about that? It seems, being a woman, that I probably should. Yes. <laughs> we need more of that divine feminine. I think it's a way that we are damning ourselves, to use that idea, as a group, by not making those qualities more explicit and more um, elevated within our communal thinking of the divine. Of course, it's in our theology, right? The, the mother God, mother and father in heaven, that we have these parents, that they are a, an, an intimate couple, for lack of a better way of saying it. And yet, mother is background and silenced. And, you know, we don't know enough about this divine feminine. And I think this is very hard on the souls and psyches of many women that I work with because they're looking for themselves, you know, to go back to the temple, I think many women are looking for themselves in the ritual and see so much masculine, don't see enough of the feminine, the archetypal feminine, don't see enough of the feminine even in as God is represented, right? So I think uh, that this is a way that our theology 
can evolve and in my view needs to evolve because we do embrace the divine feminine we have room to develop this more explicitly and i think um i talked about this recently but i was in a byu uh class when i was a student and the professor brought some hymns and i can't remember the origin of these hymns i can't remember if they were early lds hymns or but they were about mother in heaven and it was they were written by women or a woman i can't remember but we just sang them in the class and i started to cry like I, I, I like I didn't even know how much I needed that connection to my divine mother <laughs> and like it's like my soul only knew it as I started to experience it and express it and I think that we've we are looking for her I think culturally women are looking for her uh, we all need that understanding of what that strength is because I think you know, I grew up hearing ideas that, you know, obviously were not um, revealed ideas. These were cultural attempts to make sense of the silence around the divine feminine. But she's so sacred that protecting Father in her, yeah, got her locked in the back. <laughs> yeah, uh, those kinds of ideas, and, and you know, which suggests that the most high form of feminine is still weak or dependent or can't handle herself or can't be knowable. And I don't think those are very um, helpful ideas when you're as a female trying to figure out what do you identify with as the as a version of strength. This reminds me of a poem that I shared with with both my sisters and others who I texted, uh, whom I texted about these, you know, this opportunity to ask questions. And it's from Carolyn Pearson. I'd like to read that to our mother, remembering that Jesus named his father from the cross and said, Abba, Abba, why hast thou forsaken me? And remembering, too, that on the kibbutz, I learned that even today, children speaking Hebrew call their father Abba and their mother Ima. I'm amazed to find in my balancing hands two balancing words, and the first speaking of the new word is this, Ima, Ima, why have we forsaken thee? And so that, that leads me to this other question that is, and, and you spoke to this already a little bit, Jennifer, but if you could maybe answer this question for, for one of our listeners from a friend who asks, is there a difference between the title God and the title goddess? Will I as a woman ever be a god, or is it goddess? Are the titles like man and woman each having different biology and gifts? Having just read section 137, I wonder at the description from the prophet Joseph. I think this is a separate comment or with a question. He said, he saw God on his throne and Christ next to him. Then he mentions male prophets, etc. Since I've read this book of poetry, she was referring to Carolyn Pearson's book, it was glaringly obvious that there, were, there was no mention of Heavenly Mother. Why is she absent from all of her recorded accounts of heavenly visions? I don't know if you can speak to that. Uh, yeah, well, I, these are questions I've certainly had for a long time <laughs> and have cared very much about. And um, the hopeful part is that we are a faith of ongoing revelation and ongoing development and we are also individually immature but we are also uh, institutionally immature in my opinion and as joseph smith talked about and many church leaders have said that we need to keep our hearts open to be able to receive greater wisdom but i think we are often limited by the cultural immersion in which we exist because we can't often we can't change what we can't see. And when we can't see it, because we're so accustomed to a way of thinking, 
that we limit what we can really understand about divinity. And so I, I wonder if part of our interest in the divine feminine is about our own evolution as people, that we know what questions to be asking. We're knowing where to seek. It's already in our theology. This is so much what the work I do is, is looking at our theology that provides for so much, and yet we often are interpreting it at an immature level, and yet there's so much there to provide for our ongoing spiritual, relational, and sexual development even. And so I think we need to, we have, we have forsaken our mother. I think it's going to come from our ability to see. She's there. But can we see to bring her into our psyches and into our hearts? And so I think much of it is a lot of the work I do with women in the courses I teach and the workshops I do is helping women to embrace their strength unapologetically, embrace their capacity, embrace their wisdom, embrace their sensuality, embrace their sexuality. I mean, the, I've talked to women about being a female goddess, a sexual, sensual, emotive, earthy creature, which the divine feminine is, and to embrace the goodness that's in that. Because I think so often women have been taught to hide it, to press it down, to be afraid of it, to our shared weakness. When women are not able to embrace their own strength and their own capacity and their own wisdom, the marriage suffers. Men suffer for this also. Like sometimes we have the idea that patriarchy allows men to thrive and women not to. Well, everybody's suffering. I mean, really, <laughs> because it's not whole. And so there's too much fear and pretense and not enough strength and wholeness in the couple. And we all need that. Jennifer, what would you say to anyone, whether a man or a woman, who, who feels threatened by this image that you've given us of the divine feminine? It, it can be, I, mean, I think of some of the things you said speak in terms of tropes that have been associated with, with, with witches, in, both in antiquity and modernity, because of the, the 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 threat that they pose to sort of the established order, which is you, which has been patriarchal. Well, what I would say is that that's that's pretty natural response. Um, I think that it's also an immature response in the sense that, you know, sometimes what I say is, is is a strong man does not need. A, a weak woman in order to be strong. So that is to say, strong be strength begets strength. Weakness begets weakness. And so it may feel threatening, but what, what we want is the capacity to be strong enough to handle that natural tension. If the feminine is about fluidity and expression and sensuality, there's often an inherent um, unease with it because it represents change. It represents uncertainty. It represents what we don't yet know, what we haven't yet mastered. And part of spiritual capacity is to tolerate better uncertainty. We don't really think of spiritual. We think of spirituality having all the answers. We've got it all nailed down. <laughs> we love that idea. I mean, who doesn't? Because that makes us feel less insecure. But really, I think it's more about the ability to tolerate what we don't yet know what we can't control. Like as a parent, so much of loving is tolerating what you can't control uh, because that allows you to love and to care even though 
it may put you up against disappointment or loss or, you know, uncertainty. And so this ability to handle growth, I talk about discomfort for growth a lot. Faith is about reaching into the dark and tolerating what you don't yet know, what you haven't yet mastered. You have to handle that uncertainty to grow into deeper knowledge and wisdom. And the feminine often represents that uncertainty or change and shift. For us to be a robust faith community, we have to tolerate that inherent tension without trying to dominate it, snuff it out, you know, you know, push it away from us. It doesn't mean we just rush to every critique, of course, because there is a tension between the wisdom of of or the of conservatism and liberalism. There's wisdom in both, right? The like to be able to tradition, hold on to what we know. But as um, I listened to a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell several years ago called Generous Orthodoxy, and he talks about in a in a couple of different stories this fundamental tension between holding on to tradition, but allowing it to evolve and the flexibility that we need to stay relevant to keep thriving. It's, it's always uncomfortable. Growth periods are uncomfortable, but they give us the capacity we need to thrive in those periods of more stasis. And so it's learning to develop the capacity to embrace that tension and that uncertainty. To back up to a, something else you said, Jennifer, you, you hinted at the idea that we have to seek Heavenly Mother to find her. And, and this is, you know, we have, we've forsaken her, as Carolyn Pearson says, Carolyn Pearson has said. And so I know that from, we just finished a study of the Doctrine and Covenants as a church. And at, here at Latter-day Peace Studies, we, we podcasted all year on, on the Doctrine and Covenants. We have so many, all of these revelations that we have, they come from questions. We have so many examples of how the heavens are open to us when we ask questions. So keep asking those questions, guys. Yeah. And one thing too, you mentioned is, you know, we're in this immature phase and and that's not necessarily a critique as much as it's just a chronological reality. Like we've been around for 200 years. There are churches who have already worked through some of the bugs that we're kind of still working through. The beautiful thing about what we have is we've been bequeathed, so to speak, with this endowment of continuing revelation. I can't even imagine Joseph Smith who was, you know, famously railing against the creeds and the orthodoxy of his time, just going forth and instituting a new orthodoxy and saying, you know, your orthodoxy is wrong. We're going to, we're going to institute this orthodoxy instead. That, that's, that wasn't the model. That wasn't what he was trying to communicate. And in Doctrine and Covenants, Chris and I have talked about this extensively. He, it, it wasn't so much what came out of his exploration that was so revolutionary. It was the exploration itself. It's like teaching us that, you know, we can do the same thing. We can ask, we can learn, we can explore and have new revelations just like he did. I mean, he's a person. We're, we're persons. <laughs> There's not much different there. And our last episode was on perennialism. And so, you know, considering that we are in this, in this phase or this stage where others, you know, among Christians have been through this phase or stage already and matured and, you know, worked through it and passed it, we can actually turn to those other traditions and we can take the best because this is the fullness of times, right? We can take all of what has come, uh, come down to us from God in all ages and incorporate it. 
Well, and we have this also this tension of like, here are the rules, obedience has a has a virtue in it has a value in it, but then personal revelation. So that is this intention between here's the structure, but you must be a seeker, you must pursue what is true for you, you must take responsibility for your morality. And that's something I think we underemphasize to our detriment, because we need that diversity. We need that wisdom that's coming from all of the different individuals in pursuit of truth for us to be strong. That will develop us. You know, whenever you have someone who starts subjugating their view out of fear, whether that's in a marriage, in a family, you start to handicap the vitality or the the growth capacity of that organism. And so, you know, if you're dissenting from an honest and earnest place, to create a stronger reality, it's a virtue, even if you're wrong. Okay, it doesn't mean you have to have everything right. Because even that dissenting view allows others to consider what they think is right, to refine their thinking, to think about the aspects that they hadn't accounted for well enough, to be in a prayerful seeking, which I think is so much a part of our faith is this pursuit of knowledge, which is how it began. So yeah, I think that one of the aspects of my faith as I took it in as an as in my earliest years was this idea that the truth mattered and pursuing it was good and that it was a process. So th- that for me, and maybe it was partly my family's style, but I really saw that as really fundamental to being a Latter-day Saint and not about just landing at the right answer and getting in a sort of static, you know, kind of rigid position, but to stay open and pursuing of of true wisdom. Well, Jennifer, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate you coming on. I've learned a lot from this conversation, just in the exploration we've gone through. We're we're rounding up to about an hour right now. Is there is there anything you'd like to close with? Uh, any thoughts that you've had that, that have come to you during this discussion that you think this would kind of sum up your feelings about the divine feminine? Well, I don't know. This is not kind of an undeveloped thought. It's just sort of coming into my mind. But, you know, we're, we're, well, we're, in a, we're in a period of transition, I think, in the church that's a little bit scary um, to go back to how change can feel frightening. There's, you know, I think a shift in how we access information. There's with COVID, there's been a lot of challenge, I think, to what have been ideas that sort of held for a long time. And, and I think that it's, it's, it's something that out of fear could push us either into rigidity, or departure. And I'm just hoping that we can stay in that tension to keep evolving as a faith community that we can embrace the uncertainty, that we can allow it to inform us, to allow us to keep growing and evolving and becoming more divine, to becoming more Zion-like, becoming wiser as individuals and collectively. Because, you know, there's so much good here and so much room for us to grow. And so I do hope that we can stay invested in our individual ways in continuing to develop and contributing to the development through our honest engagement uh, as a community. Amen and amen. 
I love that. And it really points to some of the work you're doing, especially, I mean, being engaged in this work is another form and expression of leadership that this church desperately needs and has always been there and, and is now starting to really come to the fore. We really appreciate the work you're doing. I know there's many couples out there that appreciate what you're doing for them in trying to counter some of the, the narratives that have been dominant over the last however many decades. We Saying that, we, we appreciate the work that the leaders at the top and that, that they're contributing to the church and to the world. And I, too, am in for the ride on the tension between the balance of, you know, grassroots and hierarchical leadership. And I think that we all have space to change in that uh, in that work together. So, again, I appreciate the conversation. Um, Chris, anything you want to close with? Just amen and amen. <laughs> I, I agree right. with you, Riley. And, and thank you, Jennifer, for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. So, folks, if you want to learn more about uh, Dr. Jenner, Jennifer Finlayson Fife, you can, again, go to www.finlayson-fife.com. And uh, her new course coming out called Room for Two, or the, the podcast, excuse me, Room for Two is out. So check out her podcast. And uh, we're, we're, again, thankful for you to uh, come and join us and look forward to speaking with you again. Yeah, we hope to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. I'd be happy to. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone.